of that day. So watch how this letter, as we read it here in a moment, watch how it goes from such a, a soft reminder, as almost like a devotional about salvation and the celebration of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And then it's almost as if the Holy Spirit prompts Jude in his writing to lay down the harp and to blow the trumpet with the warnings that says, the apostates are coming into the church and there is a harsh warning and reality that must be looked at. And so let's study this together and see this letter that Jude writes. Verse number one, he says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, love be multiplied. Beloved, so he's writing to Christians, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you, to urge you with urgency that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unaware. God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward he destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah. Going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. This morning we're going to look at this first section of the book of Jude. Let's pray and ask God to give us guidance this morning. Father, I thank you for this series of these four small books in the New Testament, these short letters that are very impactful for our lives today. And I thank you for the lessons that they teach us. And so I'm asking for you to guide us here in these first seven verses of Jude, that as we look at contending for the faith, that we would be on guard and protected, and that, Lord, we would strive to live holy and to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that in our time together today, it would not just be routine or ritual, uh, but that it would be something of very powerful coming from you and only you. That it would be something that would pierce our hearts, get a hold of our attention, and that we would be changed into the image of Jesus. Guide our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. letter. It's writing to the Christians, and he's going to give three terms to define Christians here at the beginning. He says in verse number one, he says, to them that are sanctified by God the Father. This sanctified by God calls us to a task. It is one that is a calling not of oppression, but of blessing. It is a one of servanthood to Jesus Christ. It is one that we have been set apart from the world, the old man is put away, and we've been called to a new way of living. And this sanctification of being set apart from the world and set toward holiness 
is a claim that all followers of Jesus Christ have. We have been sanctified by God. And then secondly, he says, And in the word here, it means to guard. And as Christians are never left alone, we know that God says he will never leave us nor forsake us. And we, on our end, must have that same commitment to us. The tendency many times is we grab a hold of that, that assurance that if we die, we'll go to heaven, but I'm going to live my life in my control in the way I want. And we so quickly will forget about Slave of a master is something that can be very difficult to grab a hold of and to live out. But he says being preserved by Christ, and then he calls them the called. Called by God, and this Greek term here gives us the idea of being summoned for duty. duty. Raise your hand. So you know what it means to be summoned to duty. And as a father... in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. And though we will take on the summon of jury duty very hesitantly and very much with no desire to get us off of jury duty, and it backfires and causes us to be called on there, and then we sit for calling. It is a privilege. It is an honor to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so he is now going to address these who he has called on, the sanctified by God, the preserved in Jesus Christ, and the called. And he says, I want to exhort you to contend for the faith. I will urge you to live this way. Verse 3 and 4, to contend for the faith by watching for the true enemy. Eight, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks as real back then in the first century church as it is today. The enemy is powerful. Thankfully, the enemy is not all powerful like our God, but nonetheless, The common enemy we have is the devil. And so don't be mistaken, dear Christian. The enemy is not your spouse. The enemy is not your parents. The enemy is not your kids. 
The enemy is not your church family. The enemy is certainly not your church leadership. The enemy is very clearly the devil and his army. The devil and his band want to destroy you. And so watch out and watch for that true enemy. Here's what Jude said about this daily destruction that we have to be aware of. In verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares. Now these men were sneaking into the church or these people and they were slowly and purposely planting roots of dissension. They were false prophets who were, as Peter would put it in 2 Peter 2, 1, You think, how in the world does that happen within a church? The spiritual leaders in the church had grown careless and complacent. And so they were sneaking in with a, a, a message of heresy and one that was damnable and one that was going to destroy the church. They were denying even the existence of God. And you think, well, no one can come into the church that way. No one could speak with volume or loud voice with that message today. But we have to understand that we must be protective not only at the very foundation that you live for and where you live. And so the church, yes, we may be guarded. We must be guarded. That means that only teaching the biblical truths and not being bogged down with man-made traditions, not getting swept away with man-made theology, but that we would stick to the truths of the Scripture. As We are together as a church that God's word becomes the place of our foundation. It becomes the place of our teaching. It is the place for our preaching. It's easy to grab a verse and to read it out loud, to close the book and then wander away from it and stand on soapbox after soapbox preaching and teaching what is in my mind and my own heart. But the reality is we stay faithful to the text. Eighty-five to ninety percent of our church body has been through the discipleship material and is already off and running with discipleship ministry. That, that means that we can't just be pew sitters. It doesn't. I'm looking to be poured into so that I can continue to pour into other people. It's the concept of being poured into, to pour out. And that's what discipleship ministry is. Then he says to be aware of those who are ungodly. In verse number four, the apostate's character is clearly seen in this very simple label as just plain ungodly. Now, we throw this term out very loosely today. 
we would say anything that does not meet our preferences would be ungodly. But what the early church and the early church fathers were speaking of in this text atheists. Now, there's a lot of things that happen today that are not our preference or things that we or atheistic. But what he is labeling here is that the enemy is sneaking in and it's ungodly. The early church fathers were addressing this and when we think about this attitude even today, I was very curious about where atheism is gone in our culture and society. The share of Americans who identify as atheists has roughly doubled in the past several years. Startling statistics from the Pew Research Centers, they had a 2014 religious landscape study that found 3.1 of American adults say that they are atheists when asked about their religious identity. And we may say in the whole scheme of things, 3.1 doesn't seem like a very startling or large number of people. But when it's up 1.6% from just seven years before that, that's showing a very heavy trend. ...are more likely to be male and younger than the overall population. So 68% of those who profess to be atheists are men, and the median age of these atheist adults in the United States are 34 years old. Now, no doubt, this is... Now, atheism doesn't want to have any effort... Atheism is about self and being. And so young men will claim this lazy man syndrome of belief called atheism with no accountability and an arrogant way to live. Now, if you know of a professed atheist, you know how frustrating it can be. an atheist or you know of one be patient be kind and compassionate but also be bold be bold in what you believe be bold in where you stand and come with that information and don't back away but then also be broken be broken instead of arrogant heart toward their eternity, it causes you to pray for their soul. Be aware of those who are opposing God's grace. Those opposing God's grace. Now the word here in verse 3, it says, or excuse me, verse number uh, 4. He says, for there are certain men crept in unaware, secretive, deceitful, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. They this word lasciviousness is the word not only for evil as a general term, but more specifically, it is geared toward a sensuality of life. So what was happening? 
lust to be a strong passion for something that is not rightfully theirs. Or if we struggle in our lusts, it is a, a passion, a desire to have something that is not for us to have. It's not right. It's not godly. It's not biblical. And so they were looking to say, So what was taking place is they were masters at using grace as a license to sin. Wandered down that road using grace as a license to sin. Because they'll just lean back on God's grace. And so very clearly Jude is calling this out. Peter will do the very same thing to his readers. Now we know not to be using grace as a license to sin. Romans 6, 1 and 2. Memorize these two verses. If you don't have them in your Bible memorized yet, highlight them, put a neon sign right at them. live any longer therein. The reality that we have to grab a hold of, Christian, is that we do not have to give in to sin. We as Christians have been giving the victory over sin. Us in front of temptation, hoping it'll all figure its way out, hoping that you'll kind of be victorious. But 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that he's already made a way for us to overcome that hasn't already faced the excuse we like to give is well somebody else just doesn't understand nobody realizes what I'm going through nobody's had to face what I face nobody's built like I'm built nobody's mind struggles the way mine struggles nobody has the tendencies the issues or the battles that I face day in and day out and if those are your excuses you haven't studied your Bible much at all mankind and then he's made a way for us to escape and that way guilty to ourselves because that's what selfishness does it says i will turn away from that and show my love and loyalty to god who has died for my place that's who i will follow that's where the whole mentality of being a servant and slave to the Lord, our master, instead of a servant and slave to ourselves and the fleshly passions. So don't dare sing about God's amazing grace while preparing yourself for the moments later to abuse that very same grace. And he ends verse number four. He says, be aware of those who deny God's truth. He says, for the, uh, he says uh, and denying, verse number four, denying the only Lord God and denying.
Jesus Christ is God, and he reigns as king and Messiah. And we would have a pretty close to unanimous vote on that today. But these apostates, these true enemies of the truth, they... and penalty for our sin by dying on a cross. And the apostates and heretics, the atheists, those who are against the truth, will deny every bit of that. And They do not want to claim that Jesus Christ came back to life. So they refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and our Savior. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul would write, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So Christian, does your life show a representation that you are not your own, but that you have been bought with a very precious price by Jesus Christ? And if you're living that life, you're going to strive for holiness. You're going to strive to do right. And their life represents that of which Paul would write to Titus, these apostates. He would write and warn the pastor Titus. He would say, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Else, that's another group. But then when we take time to really reflect on our own life, are we denying God because our works are abominable? Our works are disobedient and our works would represent a reprobate? And so of this true enemy that is out there. After this clear instruction from Jude, he brings us now to a place of application. And he's going to say, here's the warning about the apostates, and here's what you can do about it. And what Jude is going to show us with application is he's going to reference three examples from the Old Testament that his readers would be very well aware of. And these three examples, I think you and I will be able to connect with today as well. And so, number two. nothing less than victory declaring nothing less than victory world cup right now croatia and france i think the scores are going i'm getting lit up here but everybody wants to be on the winning side who's cheering for france anybody in here cheering for france all right, one. Anybody cheering for Croatia? Another three. Okay. How many of you are like, what in the world are you talking about, France, Croatia? Are they at war? I didn't hear about this. Turn on Fox News, okay? All right. So everybody wants to be on the Trojans. There were many times on this soccer field and in that basketball court, we took some mighty beatings during our high school years. We all want to be on the winning side. I'm thankful that sports does not determine our eternity. Aren't you thankful for that? I'm thankful that my golf swing does not give me my place in heaven. I'm really thankful for that. Although Brother John Richardson would have a nice mighty pad up there with his golf swing. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we are on the winning side. 
and we can claim nothing less than victory. While we live this Christian life here on earth, it is important that we declare that victory and we live our life in sight of that victory. Once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, these are the Israelites leaving. Not. This past Wednesday, we studied Psalm 90, the psalm written by Moses, probably the oldest psalm, as Moses lived in 1400 BC, and he would have penned the words to Psalm 90. And he talks about how God's Judgment came on the children of Israel because of their disbelief and because of their disobedience. And Jude is going to remind his readers about the Israelites and he says, Avoid being ruled by fear and doubt. Avoid being ruled by fear and doubt. If you're from fear and doubt. So the readers would have been very familiar with this story of the Israelites leaving Egypt and wandering the wilderness for 40 years and their disobedience to God, their murmurings against God. And the harsh lesson we learn about this story is that their fear and doubt brought God's judgment. Now Numbers chapter 14 verses 26 through 38, write that down, read it sometime because it gives us the summary of Israel's rebellion and how God responded. Numbers 14, 26-38. Bear with this evil congregation, which murmur against me. I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. And then the verses unleash, and it's not a very pretty uh, conversation between God, Moses, and Aaron. that the Israelites had, it was fueled by fear and it was fueled by doubt. They just couldn't trust God, the one who had parted the Red Sea and let them walk across dry ground, the one who had brought the waves back onto the Egyptians and conquered them and buried them under the water there, the one who had provided manna from heaven for them to eat, the one who had given them water to drink. This was the God who was real in their life, yet they still God's will. It was one summer night when you think of fear in our hearts. I can relate to this because of Bailey in Brooklyn being a little bit afraid when lightning and thunder roll out. Just putting him to bed and she was about to turn the light off when he asked with a little trembling scary voice, mommy would you would you just stay with me all night tonight? Smiling the mother realized that this was Well, the fear came out. Nowhere do we find an escape clause for our fear and our doubt. God doesn't want to hear our excuses. 
we may say, well, God understands why I doubt. God will be patient with me. I mean, this is a little bit of a, a step of faith. There's, God understands why I'm doubtful. Or we may say, well, I'm naturally fearful. I'm afraid. I, I can't do this. It, it's a whole new ball game. It's a whole new way. And, and, and God will have to... or an escape or an excuse for our fear or for our doubt. Do you remember how God addressed Joshua? In Joshua chapter 1, Moses, the leader of Israel, has just died off, and the mantle has been passed to Joshua. And now Joshua is looking at millions of people who are saying, something's got to happen. We're going into that promised land. And he's looking at a generation of people who have lost grandparents and moms and dads because they were sinful in their fear and doubt. They're buried in the desert sand. And now it's time not to look back, but to move forward to see what God is going to do in blessing with the promised land. So Joshua's got a lot going on in his mind. It's very overwhelming. And in Joshua chapter 1, God says directly to him, verse number 6, be strong. Verse number 9, after he has told him to meditate on the word of God day and night, to follow in God's way, he says in verse 9, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed or downhearted, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Do you think God gave Joshua any wiggle room? He didn't knock on the head of Joshua and say, are you going to be hard-headed about this? It was not that. He knew he had Joshua's heart. He knew he had Joshua's attention. And he just simply said, I'm going to repeat myself, Joshua, because this is vital and important. Be courageous. Don't fear. And above all, don't doubt. Don't be downhearted because I am going to be with you every step of the way. And we know Joshua turned out to be one of the greatest leaders and one that we can learn so much from. In verse number six, he transitions from the... ...rebellious heart against God. He says, "...and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day." Peter also addresses this issue in his second letter, Second Peter chapter 2, verse... with what they were referring to as they wrote about the fallen apostate angels. Now, Jude's letter is famous for, and we're not going to take the time in these three weeks to talk about all of these, but the letter of Jude is famous for bringing up obscure and controversial points. And this is one of them. This is where scholars will get bogged down for a little while. Uh, as you would study verse number six and some pastors being in here and Bible teachers and, and men who have studied text for many, many years, you know that when you get to verse number six, there are three or usually three or four different ways that commentators and Bible scholars will try to take the explanation of these angels who are fallen. In our minds, as we first read it, many of you would probably, your mind immediately
because they were rebelling and sinning against God. They wanted to be high and mighty, and God cast them out. And as we read that in the verse 6, the angels which were kept not there, but they left their own habitation, and he reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Many of you thought that's who Jude is speaking of, the angels who sinned, and they are now cast out, and they are, are free to roam as the demons roam. But when Jude is speaking here, he's talking about them as being imprisoned and waiting a future day of judgment. There's some measure of controversy in this that we're not going to get bogged down with, but we only know of two places in the Bible where it tells was Lucifer's rebellion and the third of angels that were against God. The second time, one and two, the angels came out of their place and uh, had relations with women, uh, human women, and therefore brought forth this, as uh, Genesis 1-2 puts, giant. Now, as the verse tells us, God judged these wicked angels. We're not going to, I don't have an opinion dogmatic here to give you today. It would be one that if it's intriguing, study it out. But what we do know that is in reference here is that it was a rebellious spirit, a rebellious uh, attitude toward God and his ways. So if it is the, the angels that left their habitation, that they were... Um, that they were commanded to be a part of. Because remember, the demons and Satan are still, though they roam freely in the supernatural world today, uh, they are still confined by God's leading. Remember, Satan had to approach God before he could touch Job in Job chapter 1. And so these angels, these demons left and they came to have these sexual relations with women here on earth. That would be described as a... cast out. What we do find here in this passage is that they were in everlasting chains. Everlasting chains at that moment, but later were as recorded in Genesis chapter 6. So what we know for certain is that God will judge a rebellious heart. When I studied class. We're not dissecting it all the way to the very core. We don't want to get everything all out of whack in a message. And so God just said, here's where we have to focus, is that this gives us the reference that Jesus told by Sveltana Stalin, the daughter of Joseph Stalin. And she said that as Stalin lay there dying on his deathbed, plagued with terrifying hallucinations, he suddenly sat halfway up in bed. He clenched his fist toward the heaven once more, and then he fell back upon his pillow and was dead. The incredible. One time he had been a seminary student preparing for the ministry. When he came of a certain age where you were to make your own decision on which direction you will go, he made a decisive break from his belief in God. This dramatic and complete reversal of conviction that resulted in a, a hatred for all religions 
is why Lenin had earlier chosen Stalin and positioned him in authority, a choice which Lenin too late regretted. The name Stalin means... who fell under the steel-like determination of his will. And as Stalin lay lying dead, his one last gesture was a clenched fist toward God. His heart... A man who was a seminary student... A man who purposely at one point in his life didn't fall into this, but decisively made a decision to reject God. His dying moments was clench his fist of steel one more time toward his creator. And to this day, he's still burning in hell with that judgment. He says, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding cities who were like them, we must avoid following lustful passions. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities among them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth. of apostates and the judgment that would come. He uses a very pointed example that is going to help us to see that the ungodly are wicked and they are filthy, they're unlawful, they're unjust, and they're given over to fornication. It wasn't that they occasionally, that sometimes we picture Sodom and Gomorrah, them. It was their way of living. It was what they did day in and day out. It is what they hoped and looked for. It is the way they lived and it is the way they died. The Greek verb is intensive here. It's to indulge in excessive immorality. So this was their way of life and death. What appears to be a secular problem in our day, however, it is also prevalent among Christians. The church is is taboo about talking about a lot of sex. The church is silent in talking about the struggles that are day in and day out for both men and women filled with a life of pornography that is all around us. The easy access that we have on all of our devices... ...to be guarded toward that. Jude will pointedly tell the Christians that they must, in application... a habit, it is a habitual exercise, one that is no denying of the flesh, and one that says, I have no regret, but that I will continue on. Pornography has seduced a lot. Creates a dependency that weakens the individual. A dependency that is, is looking for the next moment, the next high. It is looking for something greater and better than what they have consumed already. It is then looking to live that out. And when those expectations aren't met, it causes a disruption of the one flesh union that weakens marriages. 
even walk into society without being distracted with my sight. I can't even walk into society. that I can't even function day in and day out. Now, for some, we sit in the room and we think, well, that's not me. And you look long enough, you'll see that there are bondage in your life, bondage that is keeping you constrained from being used by God in an effective way because that guilt is so heavy that it stifles the serving heart and it causes disconnect. It causes disconnect in your relationships. It causes disconnect with your church body. It causes And this, we must take heed, sir or ma'am, what seems to be innocent in your heart and mind. So you have consuming sins in your life? Don't walk out of these doors thinking, it's how I've been for 30 years, it's how I'll die 20 years from now. If he only knew my past, just fine. But the truth is, is that the character of who we are is going to come forth. God says, be sure your sins will find you out. And so it's not this plea that says, beware of the lightning bolt that's going to slash your throat wide open. It's simply just saying, if you want to walk in unity and communion with the Lord, it's taking all of those things which are besetting sins in your life and ridding them. The marriage bond and union, there may be a lot of things here. And so we need to be aware. In, in reaction to that, many conservative Christians adopted an attitude of anti-intellectualism. Today, you will still even find pastors who are against furthering education or learning the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. There's many who say, you just read the text and take it for what it says. Others who are just anti-intellectualism, and that's not the response. Science and other deep thinking. But they were content to simply say, if I don't understand it, I just don't need it. It. Now, Christian, that's not contending for the I'm not asking you to go to seminary, and I'm not asking you to go back to Bible college. I'm simply asking you to devour God's word. I'm asking you to soak it in. I'm asking you to pray for God to...
say it's, it's all done, what I don't know is just going to have to go to somebody else because that's not contending for the faith. Too many Christians think that ignorance is bliss. Charles Spurgeon put it best. He said, I believe a very large majority of churchgoers are merely unthinking, slumbering worshipers of an unknown God. For the faith is knowing what we believe and why we believe it. Peter would write, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So Christians, today we see what Jude has told us, the warnings to be aware of with the true enemy and the application that says claim nothing less than victory. That right there, my friends, is verse number three, contending for the faith. The question that we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to contend for the faith? Father, you deal in our hearts this morning. We've had a lot to digest and a lot to take in. I pray that nothing we have said have been distracting to the true message that you have for us. And so with your people all across.